Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So the government has far more flexibility than we do to spend money that it doesn't have. Compared to you and me, it can borrow and not pay back for a long time, if ever. For you and me, that would end with bankruptcy and never getting a loan again. So why doesn't the government just create some money to pump into the economy and give it a sugar hit? Why does it need to keep within a budget? Well, maybe creating money just will be a sugar hit that doesn't last long because soon after we'll realise there's so much more money around, it's all worth that little bit less, and so nobody's really better off. Well, that's what Milton Friedman argued anyway. So does that mean the idea of a boost from government coffers will never work? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Well, modern monetary theory suggests that we can produce extra money to fund spending programs so long as we keep a track on inflation. That is the big concern. They admit to that, which is pretty similar, I guess, to the views of uh, Keynes in that public spending can pump prime the economy when the going is tough. But... Milton Friedman, Steve, argued the opposite, didn't he? Because of what he called nominal value. If there's basically twice as much money, each unit of money is worth half as much. Ultimately, I pay twice as much for each good. I want to be paid twice as much. So in effect, what's changed? The effect of pump priming the economy or creating extra money to try and uh, stimulate the economy uh, according to Friedman, that's not going to work. Yep, that's Friedman, and um, he makes he makes a very uh, convincing <laughs> little model, uh, which starts with a, a, a trivial, really trivial assumption that the economy is already in full employment, and therefore what you're trying to do is to boost unemployment below what he calls the natural rate. Um, now, if there was such a thing, and if you were at that point, no Keynesian government would be trying to stimulate in the first place. Okay, so what he's saying right. is that, uh, that, that, that if we're already in perfection and you try to make things better, duh, you'll make things worse. And that is something that anybody, even in, in MMT, would say, yeah, we say that all the time. If you think the economy is already in full employment, if it is, is already in full employment, and you try to make it a below that level, of, in the sense, if you try to make the market economy absorb 100% of everybody who, who uh, wants, uh, wants a job, uh, and you're already at the 100% of those who want a job and the other ones that don't aren't working are you, like your grandmother, uh, you don't want to have to work in the first place and you want to get her into workforce. Well, yes, you're going to cause inflation. But, I mean, why would – but the infl- but the point of inflation is not because the, of wages being pushed up through demand. His point about nominal value is that we just get used to the fact that things we – ju- we just adjust. Basically, we go, oh, well, this, uh, this one pound is actually worth what was uh, worth 50p a few months ago. And we just become accustomed to the fact. We, we, so what's, what's the level of employment got to do with that? How, how does that change the shape? Well, of it? Because, because if you're below what he calls the natural rate, um, then his mental picture, of course, is if you're below the natural rate, the economy will tend back to equilibrium and return to the natural rate. Um, yeah. Keynes's point and the, and the point of... Um, of non-orthodox thinkers in general is that the economy um, frequently ends up in a situation 
of, of less employment than people would actually want. And Keynes's way of saying that was that there are people who would who wish to work at the going wage, but for whom there are no jobs. Right. And um, and and so the, there's there's a part of unemployment which is called frictional in the sense that if you uh, have had jack of your jo- your boss and you think I'm getting out of here and you resign. Uh, but there's a, a vibrant labour market, so it's, it's you know four to eight weeks you'll have another job. That's frictional. Uh, or if you've resigned from one because you're going to go to another and you're temporarily on the unemployed, that's that's frictional. But what uh, Keynes is talking about, and this is remember this is all discussed in relation to the, the Great Depression, which yeah. is one Keynes was writing. Thirty um, percent of the population, with America, twenty six percent of the population was out of a job uh, at the peak of the of the Great Depression, and applying Friedman's thinking to that situation, uh, it was because wages were too high. Now, there were uh, there various times attempts to cut wages, which made, it, made the situation worse. Unemployment rose after cutting wages. So he's arguing that you know, if, if, if in, in one sense, the only way that you can um, look at that number uh, and put it into Friedman's framework is to say that people weren't working because they didn't think wages were high enough to justify them not working, so they were enjoying leisure. Now, you take a look at the leisure activities of people in 1932, and it was queuing up at soup kitchens. Mm. Um, so it wasn't leisure. Burning old clothes uh, that, to keep warm, that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, having, having entertaining yourself by standing where I can open drum of uh, a 44-gallon drum with, with wood inside it burning. Good times. Um, yeah, good times, party, party, party central. So, But that is what they actually do. And uh, Friedman was not the most extreme of the neoclassicals. He, he was sort of the, the trailblazer of this way of treating unemployment. But if you extrapolate from him through Lucas uh, to two characters who uh, dreamt up the whole idea of uh, uh, the neoclassical approach to macroeconomics these days, which started with what they call real business cycle models, um, they argued quite literally that the Great Depression was a period where workers preferred leisure over work. Mm. Crazy stuff. Un- un- yeah. Unknown reasons due to changes, unknown changes in the um, in, in social arrangements that affected the well, unemployment let that rate. be a warning to all of us. If you have a good time, then a Great Depression is on the way. But a Great Depression is a, is a good thing because it means more leisure time. That's basically what I'm saying, isn't it? But look, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, if, but, I mean, people might not believe that. So while we chat, I'm going to see if I can find that actual quote. But, but, but Friedman's argument, I'm just seeing how this, still trying to figure out how this relates to employment because uh, the crux of what he was saying was if, if more money is created because, you know, either because interest rates are low and we borrow more, so I can, so I can get cheap money, or the government spends more money, which has been created by the central bank. However, however we get more money created, um, I'll get to a point where I have more disposable income, which means I spend more on stuff, which is a good thing for the economy. But, of course, that money that I spend is income to someone else. They'll have more to spend. Uh, so, in other words, we're seeing money circulate more as well. So, we've got an upward spiral, and it's that upward spiral which is pushing prices up, irrespective of the level of employment. Yeah, this is this is the if you the, the paper in which Milton invented this world uh, was called the optimum quantity of money, yeah. and that's where the idea of helicopter money comes from. Because what he uh, did was fantasized about a, a world in which there was uh, uh, one thousand one dollar bills circulating in this economy about, I think it was 12 times a year. So $1,000 of money generated $12,000 worth of GDP. And then one day, 
Uh, and every all, all prices, everybody, all, all markets were in perfect equilibrium. So all the goods markets were uh, supply equals demand. Uh, the labor market, supply equals demand. All prices were, were balanced. And then this money uh, drops out of this mysterious helicopter and people rush about and pick up, um, pick up the money. And they're holding a certain fraction of the money in their pockets uh, as a... Um, they, they, they want to have a certain balance. Yeah. The individuals want to have a certain balance of money in their pockets. So um, they, when, when you have so this like extra discretionary thousand, money that they've got, they, or they, yeah. yeah. Well, you, m- money because you need to go shopping. Yeah. You've got money for ready for yeah. transactions. Yeah. Okay? Uh, so you've got this transactional money. And it, it, let's say for each person, let's say there's a thousand people in the world. So we're talking, you know, we're talking dropping one cent coins out of the helicopter to make it uh, divisible, but nonetheless, you know, a thousand dollars worth of one cent coins everybody's carrying a hundred cents in their pockets and these cent coins fall out of the sky it'll be pummeled to death you, by the way if they, they, well, that's a good idea frankly with this particular <laughs> i want to pummel no, a thousand dollars in one p pieces coming through the uh, that's right the yeah. so so you you very rushes about on average everybody now has two of those dollars in their pockets and they're spending them as I said, 12 times a year. So the total level of monetary demand rises from $12,000 per year to $24,000 per year. Yeah. Now, initially, a piece of, he, well, this, this is where he was, he let the side down. He, he let the neoclassical side down here and they, they, they remedied it later. Uh, what he said was, well, people would, in, would initially regard this as like a, a doubling of their effective income. Well, of well, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've got twice as much and you spend twice as much. Now, initially people think, oh, this is genuine extra demand. Yeah. So everybody tries to produce more widgets yeah. and, 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 and workers uh, expect a higher wage, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually we realise that, that all those that all that money is worth half as much now because there's twice as much of it. Yeah. So what happens, you have an initial increase in economic activity. Yeah. And then when people realise that you know, then prices rise because of it, because you've got rising marginal cost, yeah. but then a little of a little economic fallacy they use regularly. So prices rise, and therefore what happens over time, you re- you have go from initial boost from the extra injection of money to a higher level of the price level. Yeah. So you might double the if you double the money supply, you double the price. Which is Friedman's taking. argument is it's it's a it's and that's when inflation kicks in because it, yeah. So yeah, and yeah. that Friedman's no, no, argument no, no, is no, no, he, no. he likes. I know no, you're not supporting it, but you're stating what he said, and he likened it to to having a drink. You know, the first few are very nice, but you get a, a nasty hangover at the end of it. In other words, there's a, there's yeah, a lag between thought, it, yeah. the time it takes people to realise the impact of that extended money supply. So things are looking great at the beginning, but then it all goes wrong. It all goes to S. I was about to yeah. say. Um, no, the uh, the other thing is that he, that was the first initial thing and that was the he argued that if you have a thousand dollars in circulation and you double the amount in circulation then there'll be initial boost to economic activity followed by rising prices over time which will ultimately return you back to the same natural rate of unemployment the same level of equal equilibrium output in every industry because everything has the same nominal value that's the term he used doesn't it well the yeah the price the price the double in the nominal same real okay So the real wage doesn't change, the real, but the prices all double. Now, what he then says, well, let's now, rather than saying there's a single helicopter flying across once only, there's a stream of them every year dropping, let's say, $100 per year initially. And then, you know, then you've got 1100 so they drop, um, uh, you know, it goes up exponentially over time. Uh, but so what that means is people will, will, will then realise, well, because of these helicopters dropping money out of the sky, uh, prices are rising at 10% per annum, so I simply expect 
prices to rise by 10% per annum. Therefore, I increase my prices by 10% every year, even without any, with, with no change in the amount being produced. So you stick at this equilibrium and you intersect, you draw your two intersecting lines and bang, there's, there's price mm-hmm. and quantity for each market. Uh, but that's in, in, in real terms. Like if, you, if you're working at the price of pigs in terms of bar, bars of gold, then that price doesn't change. Relative prices remain constant. But what you have is all nominal prices continue rising at 10% per year just because people expect them to rise at 10% per year. Because, because so, they've got used to the idea that the money supply is expanding, which which yeah, I guess is... bloody helicopters. Yeah, you know? all these helicopters, which we can't see. So, I mean, I guess that does mm. you raise the question, just how clued up are we all in terms of... Uh, how the money supply is expanding. How do we really know? Well, I mean, it, it's, it, it's it, it, the whole theory is, is bollocks. Right. Um, but that's but the science logical. What, you know, when you read it, it, it makes a lot of yeah, sense. It makes a lot of sense. And then you look at it and work out, is this, actually, is this actually how the monetary system works? Are there helicopters flying over the top, dropping the money? The helicopters, of course, were an analogy for the central bank. Yeah. Okay. The, the idea of being a helicopter is that it's outside the economy. It's not part of the market system. It's uh, it's a, it's a, it's a ex- exogenous imposition on the market system. That exogenous uh, unit being the central bank creating too much money, which of course is the financing government running deficits. Yeah. So the idea is you shouldn't have the deficits. Uh, the government, if the government, this exogenous force that sets the money supply, if it stopped increasing the money supply, inflation would disappear and it wouldn't need to disappear through a depression or anything of that nature. It would just people would adjust their expectations. So it'd be a, 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 in terms of the impact on the physical economy, it'd be a gradual, mild thing. You might, just like you get a bit of a boost for demand when you increase the money supply too much. He actually recommended a furnace, by the way. This is what people, most people haven't read the article, of course. Um, when you read it, he actually says that it would be better to have a furnace burning the money at 7%, I think it was, per year, because he said that would increase welfare. So rather than – so that is, that's too radical. <laughs> Even Milton Friedman realised that. So he finally came down and made a couple of, um, you know, uh, fudge, fudge comments about what was sustainable and finally said uh, something like about a 3% increase in the money supply should mean zero zero inflation. And let's let's argue for that. Mm. Aim for that rate of increase of the money supply. So this and is gets, exactly why, isn't yeah. it? This is why governments say that they don't want to uh, borrow more than they have to. This is why they want yeah. uh, fiscal conservatism. They say, you know, let's let's make sure that we live within our means. Otherwise, if we create money, that's going to create inflation. The crux of why so many banks, so many banks, so many governments are talking about austerity or living within our means. Yeah, uh, but this this is the um, um, this this is the pot calling the petal black because it's actually the banks that are creating the money fundamentally, not the government. Yes. Um. So and yeah, they're creating exactly. it not for um, um the yeah, they're, they're, they're creating yeah. it not for um. Uh, you know, the government sense in terms of the government creating and carrying the debt itself. They're creating money by creating debt that their borrowers have right. to. I mean, again, in effect, if they believe uh, that Friedman was right, then they should be curtailing the uh, uh, the lending activities of the uh, of the commercial banks rather than... Well, no, if Friedman was right, they don't create money at all. This is mm. the thing. Uh, their, their model, is Friedman's model, uh, he's fundamentally in the whole neoclassical trend of loanable funds, um, uh, and and exogenous money, where the money supply is determined by the government, not determined within the economy itself. So the whole point of the endogenous money, as it's called, and I prefer to call it bank-originated money and debt or bond, 
Yeah. The whole point of that research agenda was say this is a nonsense description of the real world. It's not it, it is not the case that the government is the only way that you can create additional money and therefore the government's responsible for inflation. Uh, the government is one means of creating money and in the modern economy, given how much we've handed power over to the banks, it's the banks that are creating the money, not the, not the government to begin with. And then secondly, in terms of the causal process that Friedman put forward, he argued that if you increase the money supply, that will cause um, a rise in prices. Uh, in the endogenous money world, uh, Basil Moore's original argument was that if there are it's high unemployment, high, if unemployment is already low, so you've got you know, high bargaining power for workers, they will demand uh, money wage increases and firms will be able to provide that because they have lines of credit at the banking sector. So that when when they've got it for the very reason that if their material costs and their labour costs rise, they can instantly fulfil those without needing to go to ask the banks for another loan. So you might, it's a bit like a credit card. Uh, so the major corporations have what they, they used to have. They've almost been eliminated by the banking sector now. But a line of credit might be negotiated for a firm of, say, a, a billion dollars. Hexess is about, a, you might have about 100 million outstanding at any one time. If oil prices rise or if wage uh, levels rise, then they'll bump that up to 200 million because the, and the bank simply has to do it because the bank has already signed the contract. Again, the, the, if you have a, a credit limit of uh, 10,000 pounds on your credit card and you're at 1,000 pounds, uh, you can go out and spend 1,000 quid and the bank can't ring up and say, you can't do that, okay? They've already agreed you can go up to 10,000. Well, when they do it, that means that then the money supply rises in response to yeah. the increase in, royal, in, in in prices rather than causing the increase in prices. So you've got the whole cause and mechanism back to the front. Yeah. And, and in fact, if you're a bank manager and somebody came to you and said, uh, look, you know, I need to borrow some money because, as you can see, the economy is doing really well right now. There's all this growth going on. Can I borrow a billion quid? And uh, the bank is going to say, well, I can see that, you know, you've got a business plan here based on the current growth that we've got. But if I lend you a billion quid, that's going to extend the money supply. Uh, and that's going to create, you know, and, 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 and we've got to ask the question of how much of this demand, according to Friedman, is this short term, this temporary demand. And it's all going to, once we realize the, you know, the nominal value of things, once we've adjusted to the fact there's a bigger supply of money, then uh, prices are going to go up and demand is going to going to slip away. So by and by creating this money, I'm only going to make that situation worse. So now you can't have your money because it's all uh, it, it's not real demand. It's all going to disappear because the money supply is expanding. Have you been out harvesting mushrooms, mate? <laughs> but you know what I mean. I don't know if you follow my logic there, but it's like it's it's false logic on 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 their part. The more money supply, according to Friedman the more likely you're going to create inflation, you're going to create this temporary demand. So, yeah, you're, so you're, 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 you're fantasizing a bank manager who thinks... Yeah, sorry about uh, that. That's where we were right okay. at the beginning of that sentence. That, I went that, wrong. It's, it's, yeah. Sorry, it's mushrooms. It's obviously <laughs> mushrooms. Uh, I know it's very damp in the part of the world you come from. Sorry. Uh, no, the bank will say, yes, would you like Would you like fries with that? Yeah. They'll give you more money when the, when the boom's going. And this is actually where Richard Vague... But, are the, but is Friedman point. right on that, though? If you are pumping... No. More, none of this is right. So no, if you, if, none of it's right. Right. Okay. So great. Okay. It's it's it, the causation is backwards. Um, and and like as my point about thinking about Richard Vague's work, the the brief history of Doom. She says there there's such strong incentives on the, the individual bankers and, and the whole culture of banking to create more loans when there's a boom going on that everybody does it and they lend far too much money. Yes. So far from restricting, I say, yeah. Would you like another another billion with that? 
um, you know. Um, it, 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 there's no restraint when there's a boom going on. Everything shuts down when, when it all but comes is it, crashing but down the other side. Right, but is there, isn't there a danger that if there is a lot of loans given by banks that that is going to create inflation at some point? Of course, and it ends up in the asset market. Yeah. This, this is, this is mm. a large part of it. Some of it, yes, turns up in the real economy, but it's, it's, it's private sector. <laughs> Take it back to my usual theme. Yeah. It's back to private sector credit creation that drives the ups and downs of the economy when Friedman was saying it's government money creation that does it. And all we've got to do, is, according to Friedman, is control government money creation and you won't have inflation. Yeah. Now, that, that's the mentality that, that dropped into that. Um, uh, the, the, first of all, came up with Vokla. Uh, the, the, the vocal recession, uh, and it didn't work anything like what Friedman said because Vokler put up interest rates, and the, the, the neoclassical vision is effectively increasing prices, uh, increasing interest rates or, or cutting supply are the same thing because if you draw, all you're moving is the point of intersection of the curve. So if you have a vertical money supply, which is the vision that um, that Minsky that, that, that um, uh, Friedman has, vertical meaning that it's independent of the economy, it's set by the government. So you simply draw a straight line saying that's the current money supply. And if you move that uh, out, then you drop the interest rate because the, the, the amount of the equilibrium, the demand curve slopes down, the supply curves a vertical line. You move the vertical line out, interest rate will fall. Equally, you could, you could if you want to go the opposite direction, you move the line back, interest rate rises. You can do this, therefore, the same thing by changing the interest rate. Uh, just choose the higher interest rate and that's like reducing the supply. Now, that's what Vokler did. We earned interest rates of 17%. Uh, what that meant was people with money were, who'd borrowed money from banks were going bankrupt. Mm. Uh, they were, The people who had credit card debt couldn't afford the increase. They stopped borrowing. Credit demand collapsed and the economy into a serious recession. The the 1990, the, the recessions in the 80s and 90s. Uh, 80, the, I think it was the 80s for the, for the recession. So, and then that broke the back of the unions and you lost the bargaining power they used to have. And that's a major part of why inflation has trended down ever since. Yeah. So it's, but it didn't, it didn't happen through the expectations. Um, well, I'm interested, I'm interested in the whole idea of expectations. The, the fact that, you know, that we are adjusting uh, according to what our perceived uh, understanding of the supply of money is. I must. Uh, I must ask around and ask people whether they think the money. You know, I'm, I'm going to call my mum yeah, later. Hey, mum, do you point. think the money supply is going up or down? What do you reckon? Yeah, uh, and, and that's she'll that's be asking why I've smoking. Yeah, yeah, well, that no, that that well, it's not you as Milton Friedman who's been smoking <laughs> now, and it's much much better than mushrooms. Um, that's that's the the mental world they have mm. that we are all effectively demigods. And uh, the trouble with Milton Friedman's position in terms of neoclassical theory was we weren't smart enough demigods. Yeah, because according to him, we'd only react after uh, there was a period of if the government increased the money supply rather than by by 3% per year, which would give you equilibrium, the prices would be constant. You're increasing it by 10%, uh, which gives you, say, 7% rate of inflation initially, and then it, it cascades above that as your expectation shift. Um, he, his argument was we adjust by experience. Okay? Mm. Uh, so we experience a period where money supply is growing faster, and therefore with a lag, and he literally uses that phrase, with a lag, we adjust to it. Now, that wasn't good enough for Robert Lucas and friends who gave us the modern uh, real business cycle and then the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium way of looking at the world because that point, and the, Lucas literally makes this in his the, the, he's one of his most famous papers, he says that, well, that means that the government if it's willing to tolerate accelerating inflation, can cause the unemployment rate to be below the natural rate permanently. So let's say the natural, natural rate 
you know, the rate the economy will tend to, which is it's bullshit, but that's one of their parts of their model. Yeah, yeah. Let's say it's four. Let's say it's four percent. Yeah. Well, let's say, say everyone, it's five. Everyone keeps on revising it down lately. By the way. <laughs> yeah, because, I know. That's one of the amusing things about it, um, because you know the, the, it doesn't exist. Yeah. But anyway, they say they think it's five percent, and he said the government's willing to accelerating inflation. It can make the rate steep at four percent indefinitely, just by tolerating the accelerating inflation. That's not good enough. That means the government can have a real impact upon the economy. We want a theory in which the economy can't affect the government can't affect the economy in a beneficial way. Um, therefore, we, we have assume is that not only do we uh, we don't learn with it with a lag, we have a model in our head that happens to be exactly the same model that neoclassical economists have of you know supply and demand, and that is actually the model is accurate to describe in the real world. And therefore, if the government plans to put up money supply by ten percent, we know there will be seven percent inflation, and therefore we instantly adjust our spending, or you adjust our prices as well. And that therefore means, and quote unquote, this is from a paper by Lucas and Rapping, I think, um, the because of the assumption that these, the public knows the central bank's um, policy formula, uh, the government cannot exploit the Phillips curve for even mm. one period, meaning one quarter. So they said instantly, any change in government supply will instantly cause inflation, no change in real output, which is to them an improvement over Milton, where there'd be a temporary improvement and then a fallback. And the inter- Are you feeling like you have eaten mushrooms yet? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, the Phillips curve is an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, because that's been largely discredited now, hasn't it? But I mean, it's not by people who've read it, mate. <laughs> no, that's, that's that's a topic for a future one. What is what was actually the Phillips curve? Because the, economists- I mean, the idea was higher inflation uh, comes with higher output, which means unemployment falls. But we yeah. we know that's no, not it, what it, happens. It, well, no, no, no. We, that's not what it was. Okay, that's what the textbooks say it was. You read Phillips; uh, it was he had three factors that caused uh, rate of change of prices. There was yes, the unemployment rate, the rate of change of the unemployment rate, and feedback effects. So, a, a, a wage price spiral. He actually used that term. And if you put that that complex of vision into what's um, um, setting setting the uh, inflation rate, then you can fit the data. Okay, it's it's not a case that it breaks down in the way that Friedman argued uh, back in the 70s and 80s, and the so-called period, the period of stagflation, was used as a, a reason to demolish Keynesian economics because, accordingly, then this couldn't happen with the Phillips curve. Yes, it can. When you take a look at the data, the points that diverge from the the, the curve. Phillips first drew, which of course can change over time, those points can be explained by the factors that Phillips actually had in his paper. One was periods of falling unemployment causing rising wages, and the other was um, he used the idea of uh, import uh, restrictions during war, Vietnam War, and the OPEC price rises. And they account for all the deviation points that people use to say the Phillips curve had broken down. So again, that's that's the topic for another. Let's have another podcast yeah. on that one. But just, but okay. just, but but surely Friedman's view negates the Phillips curve anyway, because I mean, Friedman's argument was um, you know, that higher inflation isn't going to create higher output in in the longer well, what, term because what, what, of the, because of this nominal value argument. You know that well, what what he what he gave us was this idea of short run and long run Phillips curves, right? And so the short run curves were exactly the same shape as the curve that Phillips drew. Um, you know, you know, if you put unemployment on the horizontal axis, you have a high level of unemployment. You get a lower level of, uh, of price change, and this is curved 
curve relationship. And what he said was those are the short run curves. And what you do when you have the first boost to money supply is that you drive the economy up that short run Phillips curve. So you go from, say, let's say you're at zero percent inflation and five percent unemployment. You go up that curve to, say, five percent inflation and four percent unemployment. And then when people realize that, in fact, uh, it's just a change in the nominal supply. There's been no change in the real economy. You go horizontally back to the point where you're at the 5% unemployment, but you've now got 5%. And then to get the next boost, you've got to go up. This, the Phillips curve is moving out. Mm. The short run curve well, that's moves out over time. That, 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 that can do, and that's the argument they use. There's a long run curve. This is the whole idea of the natural rate. Right. Okay. All right. What about um, – so Keynes had the argument that we, you know, if we've all got money to, to spare, uh, we use that. To, to, for example, to to invest, we've got this idea of our idle balances, and we we adjust mm. what we do depending on the economic circumstance, and that changes. That that has an influence on the amount of liquidity because we might hoard money, for example, when when interest rates are low. How does that play into Friedman's view of of nominal value? Because that that would say if we've if we've got more, if you ex- expand the money supply, and we all of a sudden feel richer, we're not necessarily going to spend it, are we? We might. Uh, Stick it under the mattress, for example. Well, liquidity preference, it's, 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 it's a different issue in some ways. The, anything that implies nominal factors can have an impact on the real economy is something a neoclassical economist has to eliminate. Yeah. So the whole idea that liquidity preference mattered um, uh, became trivialised uh, by the successors to Keynes, beginning with Hicks, who argued that, he, that Keynes's idea uh, was like a, what he called liquidity trap. In other words, you, you're at a point where you, no matter how much you boost the money supply, you can't change the unemployment rate because you're at a point where the interest rates have been driven to the absolute minimum, and therefore, you, know, you the only way you can uh, you, the only way you can improve things is by pushing out the demand curve for, for labour, and that takes fiscal policy. Well, that meant the government could have an impact upon the real economy, a beneficial impact, and that was a red rag to a bull of the neoclassicals, and Milton Friedman was the first one to really charge at it. And because he made his case uh, when he was a, a minority economist in those days, uh, he made that case, and you had the period of rising inflation as well with the OPEC one, OPEC two, Vietnam War, and so on. Mm. Uh, it looked like his theory made sense and empirically, and bang, that was the um, the victory party for the neoclassicals. Started in 1973, when you had uh, accelerating inflation striking at that point and a recession at the same time. And when you look at the data, what do you find? My God, you find a credit crunch. Okay, the usual stuff I, I focus on and what causes a downturn, that's in the data. But the explanation that it was all due to um, this Phillips curve shifting out, you had to shift it back again and therefore you needed fiscal restraint, that all began courtesy of Friedman in 1973 to 75. Well, I'm sure if Friedman was around today, he could argue that he's still right because if you look and think, you know, that because, I mean, his argument was if you create money, pump it into the economy, then it's uh, ultimately it's not going to have any effect because we're going to realise what's happening with this helicopter money, and so the you know the value is going to return to how it was before. I'm sure he'd be saying so. So his argument would be that there's no point in governments creating money uh, or QE and the like existing because because uh, the effect is going to be nothing except uh, a, a rise in inflation. Now we're not seeing the rise in the inflation now, but we have seen QE, and um, 
it's done bugger all, hasn't it? The economy continues to stagnate. Well, I mean, it's 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 done it's done a small amount, but it's, it's what it's really done is inflate asset prices. Uh, again, this mm. is you know, yeah, oh, yeah, the inflation inflation is not asset yeah, price asset, yeah, asset yeah, price not- inflation. Um, in some ways, the neoclassical world makes much more sense. In terms of you know, like in terms of the impact of extra monetary demand on prices, that happens in the in the um, in the financial world much more so than the physical world. All right. Mm. Well, there mm. we are. Friedman was wrong, but we continue to be, we continue to read his books. Uh, we continue to appoint politicians that continue to say that unless we curb our spending, we're going to get runaway inflation, um, and uh, and life goes mm-hmm. on. As it always unfortunately, has, unfortunately, yeah, and and what we we get is the re- argument that the government should be have fiscal restraint. And what that means is that most of the money created in the economy is created by debt, and if you have uh, that, that therefore means you get credit supply during an asset boom like the subprime crisis. After the crisis, you get uh, stagnant uh, supply creation of money by the banking sector. And you get a period of, of inadequate credit demand and, and credit stagnation, and that's where we currently yeah. are. And if we did reach the stage where inflation kicks in, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, it's a topic for another day as to who wins and who loses on on inflation. But you know, we but we do know it's those people. Well, for governments, for example, if 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 you've got inflation, then governments benefit, don't they? Because you know they they borrowed so much to you know supposedly create that inflation, but we know it's not them; it's the commercial banks. But if we go down Friedman's road, uh, then governments win by paying less in nominal terms for the for the money they've borrowed. But people on low incomes won't see those increases because they don't have the ability to negotiate for a pay rise. Mm, yeah, I think we need to go on another one, that one, mate. I think. <laughs> another, another topic, exactly. Well, another inflation topic. is an interesting one, isn't it? We'll, we'll get on to that in a, in a week or two. Yeah. Good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. Bye. Your thoughts on that conversation, of course, always welcome. It was starting to get a bit complicated for me, <laughs> but we'll dissect it, no doubt, in future episodes of the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Back again very soon. Thanks for listening. 